What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. Uh, I'm a pastor at Renaissance Church. Shout out to everybody who's taking our How to Read a Bible class. Uh, we hope that this is going to be really helpful. A few things before we really dig into today. Uh, one, if you have a pen and paper to take notes, that's actually the best thing. A lot of study and research has shown that the best way for you to retain stuff is to write it down physically with the pen and paper. The problem is none of us could ever remember where we put, where we put the paper afterwards, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but if you don't have a pen and paper, you can just obviously take out your cell phone and your notes tab so you can take some stuff down. Uh, depending how you're watching this, there's also uh, a link below with uh, notes for you to download. We put together a cheat sheet for everyone, or you could have gotten an email in advance with some notes for you to uh, have as well. So you don't have to worry about having everything written down. We got some stuff already uh, for you. Now, you're also going to want to have a Bible with you. And I would recommend either the CSB, NIV, or ESV versions. Now, uh, if you have a Bible that you are already comfortable with, feel free to use that. But these are some really good uh, translations that are really faithful to the original texts, and I would recommend these. Now, I know there's a lot of you from all over the, the spectrum in terms of your Christian experience that are with us today. Some of you have been rocking with Jesus for a minute. Uh, you've been a Christian and... Uh, now you're just wanting to deepen your your understanding of the Bible so you can get more out of it. That's perfect. Others of you have been away for a little bit, and now you're making your way back into uh, the church and starting to take your walk a little bit more seriously, maybe more seriously than you ever have. And shout out to you as well. Uh, and some of y'all are brand new, and this is the first time that you're reading the Bible seriously. When I first started reading the Bible, I would literally just drop it on my bed this is way before iPads. I would just drop it on my bed and wherever it opened up, that was God's word to me for the day. Uh, I had some very exciting times, but I definitely would not recommend that being the formula for how you go about reading the scripture. So there's two different uh, things we're going to go through today on how do we read the Bible. And those are how do we approach it, right? How do we approach the Bible? What's the What should we expect to get out of it? And number two, how do we make sense of it? So how do we approach it and how do we make sense of it? Now, a preacher was once telling a story and you know preachers love stories. And he was telling a story about walking down a beach and he saw a lighthouse and the lighthouse was was hit. It was beat up from the outside and the paint job was all chipped. There was some you know wood missing from the picket fence outside. And he wondered out loud, like, why is this lighthouse in such bad shape? But then it hit him. The purpose of a lighthouse is not to be a place where people go and take vacation selfies, although that's good. I got some myself. The, the purpose of a lighthouse specifically is to shine light into darkness. Now, the better a lighthouse can shine strong light into darkness, particularly light into a storm, that's where you get the, the value of a lighthouse, not how good it looks on the outside. Now, similarly, in a lot of ways, to misunderstand the purpose of a lighthouse would be to miss the point of its existence completely. Similarly, to misunderstand the purpose of scripture would be to miss the point of its existence completely. What is the purpose of the Bible? What does God want you to get out of this? Like, what does God hope for you every single time you, you read through a page? Now, the, the purpose of scripture is really, really important. 
And I believe that a lot of Christians have failed to understand how to approach it because we just don't know what the purpose is. So from the outset, I want us to focus in on what is the what is the purpose of, of, of Scripture? Now, I think with a lot of things about Scripture or, or anything, the best place to start is with Jesus, right? So what does Jesus say is the purpose of, of Scripture? And there's a couple of Scriptures in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that are pretty shocking from the outset. And I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years who have had a lot of different opinions about Jesus. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus was like crazy bold. The things that he would say in the New Testament about himself mean that either he was God in the flesh or he was a raging lunatic. But here's what he says is the purpose of the Bible. Um, He says this in Luke 24, 25 to 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now that is a flex. He is saying what was written in the book of Moses. So Moses, the book of Moses, those are the first five books of the new, of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are commonly referred to the books of Moses as the books of Moses and all the prophets. So all of these Old Testament books, he's saying all of these things were about me. In John 5 and 39, it says this again, Jesus was talking to some really uh, religious leaders. And here's what he says uh, to them in that point. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. Jesus is saying something really profound. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is saying that everything in the Bible, absolutely everything is pointing to him. The Bible is a story not about you, but it's a story about God in Christ. And if we're going to understand the Bible, if we're going to get the most out of it, we have to approach it in the way that it was intended to be read. And it is a story not about you, but it is about God and God's work done through God, the son, Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is not, and I repeat, absolutely not basic instructions before leaving earth for you. I've heard that acronym that, you know, some old dude in the barbershop is like, yo, you know what the Bible is? It's the basic instructions before leaving earth. And um, that is quite possibly the worst approach to the Bible you can possibly take. If you get nothing else out of today, please throw that uh, acronym out the window and never pick it back up. The Bible is not basic instructions for you before leaving earth. The Bible is a story about God and what God has done. Now, when you are reading the Bible, you and I have to be very, very careful to make sure we read it and approach it the way that it was intended to be read. Specifically, there are a number of questions that you and I have to answer when we read any passage of scripture, right? And you have to answer these questions in this specific order, right? So it has to answer these questions in this order. And here are the questions. Number one, who is God? Number two, what has God done? Number three, in light of God, who is God and what God has done, who are we? And then number four, what should we do? Now, a lot of times the Bible is unhelpful to us because we're reading it in the opposite. We're reading it from the perspective of what should we do? Then we ask the question, who are we? And then what has God done? And then finally, eventually, sometimes we get to who is God. But if Jesus is correct here, he's saying if the whole Bible is about him, 
then we should always be asking that question first. First and foremost, what does this text show us about who God is? One of my favorite authors and a mentor of mine, Tim Keller, he says it like this as we approach the Bible. He says this, the reason for some of our confusion is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will put things right. In other words, the Bible doesn't give us a God at the top of the ladder saying, if you try hard to summon up your strength and to live right, you can make it up. Instead, the Bible repeatedly shows us weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't seek it, and don't appreciate it even after they have received it. Somebody say ouch or amen. This is the great biblical arc into which every individual scriptural narrative fits. So our goal today, we're first zooming out to understand what is the narrative arc of scripture so that we can understand uh, the, the more the individual passages in a better way. Now, a quick caveat. I want to make sure y'all not hear me say something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every single passage of the Bible, if you were just to read one line by itself, that you can extract some deep, beautiful meaning about who Jesus is in that passage. That's not what Jesus is saying, but rather how that specific scripture fits into a broader narrative arc for us to understand what the Bible is all about. So there's a scripture in Leviticus 13, and it's about how do you treat and diagnose leprosy? Now, what does that scripture mean? It means how do you treat and how do you diagnose leprosy? The, the skin disease is not that deep. But if we zoom out a little bit and read that passage Christocentrically, what we get is an understanding that we live in a fallen world that is marred by, by, by sickness, by sin, and by deception. Now, all you have to do is look around us in any given moment of time, and it's so prevalent to see how much of our world is under the power of sin. And by sin, I don't mean individual choices that you and I make on uh, on random days. I mean, like my boy Rich Velotis says it. Uh, Rich Velotis is a pastor at New Life in Queens, dope church and dope dude. And he says this about sin. Sin is not just something we do, but a power that humanity is under. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip. We don't overcome it through progressive achievements, nor by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is found in a power outside of ourselves, the cross of Christ. Now, so while Leviticus 13 is not directly about Jesus, it's a part of the larger story of what Christ has come to do and the primary purpose of Christ and for us to understand uh, our, ourselves in light of the scripture is to understand what God has come to do in our life, that God has come to free us from the power and the penalty of sin. So we can read scriptures like that uh, that just show us the fallen nature of the world that we live in. Now, additionally, let me just say uh, a quick word about scriptures uh, like in the New Testament that just give us an instruction on what to do, right? So like a scripture that says, don't lie, right? It, th that is for you to do, like don't lie, don't cheat, don't kill, don't root for the patriots. There are things in the Bible that are very clear that you just should never do, right? So how are we to read those scriptures? If the Bible is not about us, how should we read that? And I want again, I want us thinking the question first, who is God? 
What has God done? Now, if we are answering those questions first and foremost in our engagement with the Bible, then it sheds light on how we are to behave later for sure. And But the primary question first is, is, is who is God? So if the question is, should I forgive someone, yes or no? Well, if we start with a human-centered approach, should I forgive someone? I don't know. Do I feel like forgiving them? If I don't feel like forgiving them, I don't think I will. But to read it Christocentrically and to zoom out a little bit and say, who is God? Well, God is our Lord and he's our Savior. What has God done? God, is, God has forgiven us. I don't think we fully understand what it means to live as a forgiven person. That as far as the East is from the West, so far has God removed your sins from you. How beautiful is that truth? Now, who are you in light of that? You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are free. What should you do? You should forgive other people as God has forgiven you. Now, that's a much different approach than starting with yourself. And we'll see this later on as we get to different passages of scripture. We always want to zoom out. This is about Jesus, right? Who is God? What has God done? Who are we and what should we do as a result? So we're going to go through a couple of examples. I'm going to model the first one, and then you're going to go through one yourself right after. And the one I want to model for you is a story about David and Goliath. If you grew up in church, going to vacation Bible school, you've heard this story a hundred times. And even if you didn't grow up in church, I'm sure you've heard of this story in society at large. And generally speaking, the way that most people approach the story of David and Goliath is human-centered. It's about them. So normally we think to ourselves, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Or if you just go into battle knowing that God is on your side, you can beat any giant in your life. Now, to a certain extent, there is some truth that with God on our side, nothing can stand against us, right? But the story of the Bible is not about you. As Jesus says, it is about him. So if we zoom out and we read it through the Christocentric lens, then what might the Bible be telling us this story is truly about? So the children of Israel were fighting the Philistines and the Philistines had this giant named Goliath. And as Goliath every single day would go out to the front line of battle, he would challenge anybody who would want to fight him in a battle. Now, the way that the war was set up was that whoever would win in this one-on-one fight would win the entire war. So one man, one battle for it all. All of the children of Israel would look out and see how big Goliath was. Goliath was like Debo and nobody wanted any piece of him. And they were all scared and terrified. And except there was one person who was not terrified. One person who was an unlikely hero that heard about Goliath defying the armies of the living God. And he said, I will go out and fight. At first, people thought it was a joke because Nobody from his stature, a little shepherd boy named David, not even uh, not, not even that big, can go and kill him. Everybody discounted him. But in reality, David went out with his own armor, doing it his way, and he killed Goliath and cut his head off. And all of the children of Israel got to celebrate as if they themselves had done something, even though they were on the sidelines scared. They were shook. Now, what is the story of David and Goliath truly about? It is about a young boy who goes on behalf of people who could not do it on their own. And God uses David's apparent weakness as the means to destroy a giant. David is Israel's champion redeemer and his victory 
is imputed to them. So even though they did nothing, they all got to celebrate as if they had done something. They get the fruit of having fought the battle themselves, even though they didn't. Now, this is the gospel truth that God wants us to live in. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us could have done it ourselves, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 through 24. None of us have the courage or the, or the power to overcome Goliath. Paul says like this in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that none of you may boast. Now, how are we to understand God through this story? We're to understand God as a one who takes the cause for people who couldn't do, the, do it themselves. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is what should you do? The gospel is what has been done on your behalf. And the more you and I live in the reality of these truths, the more that we will grow. Now, this is a very fundamentally different approach to reading the Bible than the non-Christocentric way, uh, which will put it all about what must you do as opposed to what has Jesus done on our behalf. If David and Goliath is just an example for us to try harder, it will crush us. But if it's a story about how Jesus is our David, he is our king, he is our redeemer that has slain the giants in our life, then you and I will have the courage to face any other giant that might come our way. All right, so practice time. Uh, right now, it is your turn to try. Uh, some prompts and questions are gonna come up on the screen for you to follow. Don't skip this part, it's really important. All right, welcome back. So if we read Genesis 22 through the correct lens, then what is it all about? Jesus gives us a little bit of further instruction in Matthew 5 and 17, where he says this, hey, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of one letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. What Jesus says he has come to do is not to abolish, but to fulfill. Meaning, unless we read through the proper lens, the Old Testament, for example, by itself is incomplete. Now, if you read Genesis 22 as an isolated event detached from Jesus, what's gonna happen is, it actually might just sound kind of offensive. Like what kind of God is it that would make this dude, like this guy who's trying to follow him, just like, why would he just put him to the test like that and just make him sacrifice his, his only son just to prove that he loved him? I mean, that's a little intense, bro. I mean, what is that? What what would we take from it from that reading that, you know, God is going to take the thing that you love the most and put you to the test to make sure that you love him more than that? That's not the purpose of this text. Uh, this text points to Jesus and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. Just as God's son, Jesus Christ, the wooden cross was placed on his shoulders, as we see in John 19 and 17. Isaac carried the wood up the hill, just like Jesus carried his cross up the hill. And um, as they go up the hill, Isaac asks a very intelligent question. Father, Ab yes, my son, Abraham replies, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham re replies with this gospel truth. 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Now here's the point of that story that should really matter to you and should move you. Abraham proved his love and his devotion because he did not spare his only son. And this text is showing us that if a father would not spare his only son, that is the ultimate act of devotion and love. Now, what is the gospel message for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul picks up on the same notion in Romans 8 and 32, where he says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him also grant us everything? Now, here's the the truth. Have you ever struggled to believe that God was for you? We're not going to find a conclusive answer to that based on our circumstances. What the Bible intends to communicate to us is that God has proven his ultimate love and devotion for us by sacrificing his son. Now, that's what Genesis 22 is all about. And if you find yourself in a position like I have found myself in a hundred times to doubt whether or not God is for me or with me, things like Genesis 22 shed a light on the the nature of God's love for us. Now, I've said this before, but a lot of times in scripture, the New Testament gives us a principle, but the Old Testament gives us an example. So the New Testament gives us a principle that God God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. The, uh, The Old Testament gives us an example of the agonizing decision of a father watching his son, about to sacrifice his son, and it puts flesh on it in in so many different ways. And this is what is hoped for us as we engage the scripture to zoom out and to read it Christologically and to answer those questions, who is God? What has God done? Who are we and what should we do uh, in light of those things? All right, let's move on. So not only is it helpful for us to read the Bible this way for our own personal growth, for us to grow closer to God, but it's also helpful for us to understand the Bible just in general, right? So, you know, there's a lot of barbershop conversations. I don't have too much use for the barbershop these days, but but there's a lot of barbershop conversations with barbershop theologians or corner theologians who have a lot of opinions about the Bible. And I'm not going to lie, like a lot of times I've been kind of stuck and didn't know what to say because like if you read through the Bible in the wrong lens, like stuff is just confusing and like stuff sometimes is like downright inconsistent. All right, so check this out. A couple of thousand years ago, the biggest controversy in the church was not politics, wasn't sex. It was shrimp. Well, maybe not shrimp exactly, but it was dietary laws and dietary restrictions because back in the day, like what you ate, these ceremonial laws of cleansing, they were like a really big deal. So much so that the two big wigs in Christianity in the early church, Peter and Paul, man, they went head to head about this, about whether or not you were allowed to eat shrimp or allowed to eat things that would have been prohibited because in the Old Testament, like God says, yo, you can't eat any of these things. If you eat these things, you are not clean and you cannot come near me. And there's a lot of scriptures in that uh, that just say that straight up in Leviticus 11, 9 through 12, it says, these you may eat. All of the waters, everything in the water that has fins and scales, fish, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales 
of the swarming creatures in the waters and of living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the water that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. So that is very clear. But then we get to the New Testament and Jesus in Mark 7, 19 shows up and he pronounces all food as clean. Jesus appears to Peter and tells him, Peter, rise, kill and eat in Acts 10 and says and shows Peter all of these animals, which would have previously been forbidden and says, yo, bro, go ahead, chow down. So what is it? Are these inconsistencies? Now, if you read through the Bible from a set of detached individual events, then yes, this is very this is very inconsistent because it says one thing one place and it says the opposite in another place. But if you read it as one unfolding story, then it is not inconsistent at all, but rather it makes a lot of sense. Now, the reason is clear. And only if you read the Bible through the right lens, approaching it the right way, the way it was intended to be read, because back in the day, if you were to approach God, there was this huge curtain, right? This huge curtain that separated humans from God dirty humans from the divine. And if you wanted to get close to God, you had to go through all of these ceremonial, ritualistic cleansing rituals in order to be approachable to God. However, Jesus comes, Jesus comes along and he is uh, crucified. And scripture says that when he is crucified, this huge curtain, this veil was torn in two, ending the separation between humans and God. As a result, all of the ceremonial laws are null and moot. None of them matter anymore because Jesus has ended the separation between us and God. Now, one day, 65 years from now, my Sally Mae loans will be paid off. And when they are paid off, I will not send them another penny because it is done. It is finished. There's no more need to meet for me to make any payment to Sally Mae because that no longer affects me in any way. To be a Christian means that I am trusting in Jesus, my ultimate sacrifice, who has made me clean, period. And now, as a result, all of the ceremonial laws don't matter, are not for the Christian. Because if you believe in Christ, you believe that his death has already satisfied all of the requirements for our holiness. And uh, Christ lives in us. He is Christ in us is the hope of glory. So if you are a Christian... We can read through the Old Testament, these laws that say that you can't do these things unless you want to. Um, if you do these things, you're, you are detestable to God because these are the ceremonial laws. However, the moral laws don't kill, don't cheat, don't steal, steal. Um, all of these moral laws, they are still in effect. These are the things that are not uh, ceremonial laws, but these are moral laws, things moral like in the Ten Commandments and other things like that. So the Bible is not inconsistent, y'all. It just tells one unfolding story. And when you read it through the lens of what Christ has already fulfilled, it makes a whole lot more, more sense. Now that's Old Testament stuff, but there's also New Testament scriptures that we are also to read through the light of who is God? What has God done for us? Uh, who are we in light of that? And what should we do as a result? Now, Jesus is a central character of scripture, and this affects everything about us. So in 2 Corinthians 8, 
the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people and he's telling them about this concept of generosity. And here's what Paul says to them. He says, for you know, my brothers and my sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. And I'm in this matter, I'm giving advice because it's profitable for you who began last year, not only to do something, but also want to do it. Now finish what you have started. The eagerness is there. The gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Now, Paul is talking to this church in Corinth about generosity. And as he's talking to them about this concept, he's not just saying, yo, you should be generous because God loves a cheerful giver. Although that's true. What he's saying is he's grounding them in the larger narrative of who they are in light of who God is. So he says, don't you know Christ who was rich? He became poor for your sake. So what is he doing? What is Paul doing? He's starting with who is God. God is the one who comes down for us. What has God done? He emptied himself, right? He emptied himself for us by going to the cross for us. Who are we? We are redeemed because of what Christ has done. We are recipients of his generosity. What should we do? We should be generous as a result. This is the gospel-centered way to approach uh any portion in scripture, again, not every specific little verse, but every portion in scripture, who is God? What has God done? Who are we and what should we do as a result? Now, to go a little bit deeper, I want us to answer the question of how do we understand the Bible? And I want to add a, another question to the questions we've been asking is what is the context of what we are talking about and what we are reading. Now, I heard this one quote. I don't know who said it. It says, if Christ is king, then context is queen. Now, context is so, so, so important, y'all. Now, here's a statement, a very true statement at that. My older brother is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, the same Hall of Fame that Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Lisa Leslie are in the, the Naismith Hall of Fame in Massachusetts. My older brother is in the Hall of Fame. Now, if I just left that comment by itself, it is true, but it is wildly misleading. My brother's nice. He could hoop. Not anymore. He's an old man. But uh, back in the day, he was nice, but he wasn't like Hall of Fame nice. Uh, nor does he introduce himself this way, by the way. Now, the full context of that story is that when he was a sophomore in high school, his team got invited to play in the Naismith Hall of Fame high school basketball tournament. And that weekend, they took a team photo, and that team photo was displayed in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, later, a couple of years ago, actually, I went to the Hall of Fame and asked one of the employees, now, where is this, you know, where, where that photo might be? I was wondering why I didn't see it as soon as I walked in the building. And he told me that they never throw anything away, but his photo was very likely in the basement collecting dust. So what, what does that all add up to? My statement that my brother was in the Hall of Fame is, is true. He is in the Hall of Fame, but without context, it is wildly misleading. Now, I wish we had time, y'all. I wish we had time to really dig into a lot of other stuff, but quick commercial shout out for what we are launching in the next couple of weeks. So make sure you are subscribed to our YouTube channel because we have a lot of stuff coming out specifically about the, the context around a lot of questions that people get really tripped up on. And they, they misunderstand it because they don't get the context. A couple of them. Does the Bible support slavery? That's a big question.
Does it? Number two, is the Bible anti-woman? Number three, how should we understand the problem of evil and suffering? So we are launching a, a Stoop Theology, Theology for the Ordinary Person channel on our YouTube. So please make sure you're subscribed to that. We're going to be answering a lot of these questions. We can't do all of those today. I wish we could. Um, but uh, how should we understand the Bible as, as a whole? We understand it best when we understand the context. Now, this is why uh, earlier I mentioned why actually the, the ideal for you at the end of the today is to go out and buy a study Bible. Uh, and we'll have some links in the description below and you'll get those in your cheat sheets uh, to buy a study Bible so we can understand the context. Now, in order to understand the context of scripture, we need to understand the genre it was written in. We need to understand the text, like what was going on when it was written, like how they would have understood a word. And we need to understand that theme, whatever this, the text is talking about, that theme's development through history. So first for genre. So genre is really, really important because some stuff in the Bible is historical. Some stuff is prophecy. Some stuff is poetry. Some stuff are epistles. Some stuff are gospels. And these are all to be read differently because the, the intent of the author was different. For example, a historical narrative is meant to tell you the history. It is not meant to tell you what is right or what is wrong. It's just a historical catalog of what happened. There's a scripture in Genesis, which is a book of history, which records a young woman who was raped. And then her older brothers find out what happened. And then they deceive everybody in the, in the opponent's camp have them all circumcised, and then they murder all of them. Now, that is a historical account of what happened. It is not saying that rape is good or murdering people in, in revenge is good. In fact, if you were to read that, you were to see all the consequences that happened because of their actions. So when we read the historical books of the Bible, we have to look at it that this is a historical account of God's people in real time. They are seeking to tell the history not necessarily remark on the morality of the choices that were being made. When we see God's activity in historical books, we can glean God's nature from his, his interactions with his people. Now, another genre in scripture is prophecy or apocalyptic literature like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, or the book of Revelation. They are primarily prophetic in that they are predicting future events um, or predicting a final event. Now, in order to understand a, a prophetic book or an apocalyptic book, we need to know that this is using metaphoric and symbolic language to announce judgment, blessing, and or hope for the people of God. Now, one of these days, we're going to do a long sermon series in the book of Revelation. And I remember having so many conversations with people who really put the Bible down because they're like, well, you believe that a four-headed you know, horse is going to come down. Revelation uses metaphoric language. It was not intended to communicate a literal thing that was going to happen, but rather uh, truth through metaphors. Other examples of prophecy that we see in scripture, like Isaiah 9 and 6, we, we read this around Christmas time, uh, a prophecy of Jesus to come for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And that is what we got when we got Jesus. Now, other books in the Bible are poetry or wisdom, right? So like, how do you understand a, a poetry book? 
Poems are meant to appeal to the whole person in the way that history does not. It stimulates our imaginations. It arouses our emotions. It feeds our intellect and it addresses our wills. Right. So in order for us to understand poems, we need to understand that this is a type of literature that gets its beauty through through contrast. There's a lot of beautiful imagery and historical context is generally not as determinative for meaning in in poems like Job or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Psalms, right? the, the prayers of the people. You can pick up the Psalms right now and start praying through them and they will be a, a amazingly helpful to you, uh, even if you don't understand everything that was happening in First Kings when a Psalm was written, for example. So poetry books uh, and the, the books of wisdom are, are, are meant to stimulate our emotions as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. That's just wisdom, right? Don't lean to your own understanding. Trust in him with all your heart. Now, the other ones, another genre are the epistles. And this is a lot of the New Testament written by people like Paul and Peter and James, where uh, Romans and Colossians, Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians and First Peter and James and all these different books and uh, the epistles of John. Now, these letters are instructional and occasional. It is important to note here that, check this out, everything in the Bible is written for you, but nothing was written to you. Everything is written for you, but not one word in that Bible was written to you directly. As a result, we need to understand that these letters and these epistles were written to a real group of people in a real time who were experiencing real issues. And if we want to glean from them all that God does want us to get out of it, we need to understand that context. And again, I'm going to beat this beat this drum again. A study Bible will have uh, a, a brief synopsis of what is going on in each epistle before you get to it. And that joint is mad helpful to understand uh, what that book is about. And the last one, the last genre is a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. These are the life and the teachings of Jesus. And each gospel approaches Jesus in a different way. Um, uh, the book of Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus as our servant. Luke presents Jesus as our teacher, our great teacher. And this is why Jesus tells all these parables in, in the gospel of Luke. John presents Jesus as God in the flesh. And there's so much beautiful uh, Christological language in the gospel of John. All of them are true. And we need all of these ways to understand who our, our, our King Jesus is. Now, some books have multiple genres, like Daniel has history and it has prophecy. And one of the first questions we want to ask ourselves is, what genre is this? How should this book be read? You never want to read a historical book like it's a book of wisdom. And you never want to read a book of wisdom like it's a historical book. So we first want to zoom out a little bit and ask ourselves the question, what genre is this book? How should it be read? Then we can get to our favorite questions of the day. What does this text tell us about God? Then what has God done in this text? Who are you in light of this text? And what should you do as a result? All right, I want to leave you with some really practical things on how you're going to, what you're going to do tomorrow. The goal of our scripture reading needs to be an application. And by application, I don't just mean that you do something with it but rather that sometimes you believe something differently about God, about yourself, about other people, and that you put that into practice into your life. 
I don't want you just to learn new things. I want it to transform your life. Now, there's so many different ways that we can go about putting in Bible reading into our lives daily, most days, some days, depending on where you're starting, that will be something that builds for us a foundation of God's life through our lives, that this is going to be the fuel for you in your following uh, of Jesus. So here's a couple of really practical things that I want you to do in order to make sure that this is not just head knowledge. Number one, it's how we pray before we read the Bible. And I start off with the prayer of submission, asking God to show me things that I know I don't know, asking God to correct me, asking God to motivate me because sometimes I'm just not motivated, asking God to light me on fire for him because I just don't feel like I'm passionate in my in my love for God. And this is a, a great posture of humility coming to scripture from the position that I think God wants us to have, that God, we, we can't do this on our own, including read the Bible. And if you're not careful, you will make Bible reading into just one another thing that you try to do on your own. And that is not a good recipe for success. And the second thing that we need to make sure we're doing is that we're not just having truth that we live by ourselves, but we're putting this stuff into practice in biblical community. And in some seasons, that's easier than others. But we need to make every single effort to invest ourselves deeply to be known and to know others in Christian community, to wrestle out the truths that we're learning and hearing and learning from other people and to put that into practice uh, around other people. Now, I'm going to renew my commercial for you to get a paper study Bible that's going to help us ground ourselves in the context of the scriptures and to really equip ourselves to go about it and to not just read it on your phone. Now, I, whenever I read the Bible on my phone, a text message comes in, a request for a trade in my fantasy basketball league. And next thing I know, 40 minutes have gone by and I've read nothing in the Bible. I might have read three minutes. But when I have my paper Bible, it really does force me to, to lock in and it allows me to lock in and to focus and to pay attention. And if there's anything that God deserves, he deserves our attention. So I pray I have a version that I could um, understand. I have a, a, a place where I can lock in and, and focus and pay attention. And I ask the question at the end of the scripture, God, what is it that you want me to do as a result of what I've heard? And I ask God to seal all the truth that I've heard through his Holy Spirit and for his Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me because I cannot do it by myself. Now, here, here's my challenge to all of us. The Bible was, was not actually meant to be read in small two-minute chunks, but it was meant to be read in ways for us to just get lost in it. If you put on a really good album, uh, you don't just like listen to one song and stop it. Like a dope album, you, you put that joint on and you just you zone out. You vibe out to it. And scripture is meant to be like that. We're meant to get lost in it. So I, I would challenge us to read larger chunks of scripture where you don't have to try to memorize every single portion of it, but eventually the more you read something, you will memorize it. So maybe start with a book like a James or Jonah or something for you, uh, or Philippians or a New Testament epistle that you can, or the book of Mark even, that you can get through in one sitting or two sittings because reading the whole thing will really get you, uh, get you right and help you to understand the biblical world better. Now, above all, I am proud of you for taking this journey. I've had some very difficult moments in my life, some seasons that were very, very painful. And in every single season, the thing that has sustained me has been scripture. I've had a lot, I've had a lot of boring moments in my life where years would go by and it feel like nothing happened. 
And I've grown, even though like, you know, nothing was monumental or groundbreaking in my reading. And when I look back, I say, man, I really did grow through scripture, even in my inconsistencies. And I've had some really amazing moments of fellowship with God. And that has come through scripture. And whether in your difficult moments, whether it's in your mundane moments or whether if it's in your high moments, scripture will be the thing that God is going to do all of these things through. So as you commit to deepening your your walk with, with God through scripture, I am very proud of you. And however we can serve you in that endeavor, we seek to do that. So make sure you're connected with us, that you're subscribed to our, our channel, because we do have some really great stuff coming up, that you're reading your emails and that you are uh, taking advantage of all of the things that we are offering to deepen our walk with God uh, through scripture. Because I do think that's going to change your life. It might not change it tomorrow, but it will change your life. So I want to leave you with a blessing from the book of Ephesians. A man named Paul, the apostle Paul, writes these words to a church in Ephesus that I think are really appropriate for us today. He says, I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know that Christ's love surpasses knowledge so that you, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God bless y'all.